Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Candace Thompson is a former finalist on stand-up NBC's Talent Search, who has performed on The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon and served as his correspondent on the E-series, The Comments Section. She has starred in her own YouTube sketch comedy series and written for the game show Smart, Funny, and Black. Thompson just launched her own podcast, The Struggle. But first, she's sat down with me to talk about overcoming her own personal and professional struggles. So let's get to it! So, Candace Thompson, your manager, Nat, tried to hook us up a year ago. Yes. Said you had a lot of things to say. <laughs> and that was last all year. All comedians. And now, now I've got nothing. <laughs> a year's gone by, and I've actually got less to say. Oh, my. Yeah, no. I actually have always, I always have things to say. I feel really? like all comedians do. Yeah. Yeah. What are we? I mean, we have to. We have to create things to talk about all the time. So, well, let me start with what was in her original pitch email, which was at the time you were working on a uh, pilot presentation for True TV, Smart, Black, and Funny. Oh, Smart, Funny, and Black. Smart, yes. Funny, and Black. Yes, I was working on the pilot for that, and then did that go forward? It didn't go. Not with True TV. Oh, but it's um, still in development somewhere. I think it is. Somewhere, I want to say, I, I I actually think I know where it is right now, mm-hmm. but I, I don't know if I'm at liberty to say. Um, but yeah, it's not with True TV okay. anymore. So yeah. It's not dead. It's the not dead. Is, yeah, it's no. based on a live show. It is. My you girl, and your friend, Amanda. Mm-hmm, Amanda Seals, who was hilarious and very smart and gifted. And she started doing a live show. I believe she started it in New York. And then she brought it here when she moved to L.A., and there's just an energy in the room because basically she wanted something, uh, a mechanism that would help talk about the fantasticness that is being black. And so th- and that's exactly what this show does. It celebrates like black pop culture, black history. And the energy that's in that live show is just kind of like amazing. Like you have to go see it live. And then she was like, let's we have to try and bring this to the masses. So that's when she was like, let's put it together and try and sell this as a television show. So, yeah, it still is alive. Um but I don't know as far as like when to say expect this to air. Mm-hmm. Which of those three descriptors is most important to you, being s- smart, funny, or black? Ah! You know, if I had to... If you had to be pigeonholed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for me, because I'm a comedian, I'm going to go ahead and say, and say be funny. Because <laughs> I can, I, like, I can survive not being the other things. You know, like I can survive. Nobody even believes that I'm black anyway. So like I've kind of lived with that my whole life. But being funny is kind of like my essence and what I think I need to be a happy person. Um, The smart thing, I'm a woman, so I don't need to be that. (laughs) You know, guys don't ever they're not like, oh, (laughs) what's your IQ before I ask you on this date? They're like, let me look at her tits or, you know. Is she attractive? So, like, unfortunately, it's never an important thing uh, for a woman to be smart. It is important to me, but, uh, again, you're asking me to pick, so I'm right. going to go ahead and say be See, funny. I feel in 2018 being smart is like being a unicorn There's, at this point. I mean uh, – So I would – You're right. I would seek out the smart people. You're right. I mean, we're in a culture now where doctors are going on television telling people not to eat Tide detergent pods uh, because that's a thing that's happening right now on the internet right. and people are dying. So – 
And Daniel Tosh wasn't even responsible for that. He was not. Not that. <laughs> <laughs> Other things. Not that, though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and you're multiracial. Yeah. Well, so. both my parents are mixed uh, with black, Native American. There's some white in there, too. Um, so that's at least three or four. Yeah. But it's like on both sides. So I don't exactly. We have to do the little. What is it? Did one, you do that? Me, you, one, two. What yeah, is it Did called? you do the ancestry or no, me in 23 or? <laughs> I don't want to know. Don't I feel like know? I'm going to get results back and they're going to be like, you're 95% white and you've been living a lie this whole entire life. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I don't, I haven't, I don't care. Okay. Yeah, no, I trust what my parents are telling me and I, I know my family like, and that's just how I am. So it's, t- what would that change anyway? Mm-hmm. You know, so. I did it. I took the DNA test in 2017 because I was taking my first trip to Ireland and I wanted to And you see, wanted to know? I wanted... Well, they promised that they would also line you up with, like, potential relatives. Oh. Based on the DNA matches. That's a nice part. So I was like, well, if, if it turns out that I have any distant relatives, I want to be able to say, hi, right. we're a 23% <laughs> match. I don't know if they use the same technologies that Google Arts and Culture oh. painting. <laughs> <laughs> I hope theirs is a little bit more fine-tuned than that. To go with it. You're a 54% match with woman... <laughs> dressed as a monk. <laughs> so yeah, so I did that. Well, that's cool. So wait, you and you actually I'm half Irish, which is what my family has told me. And did you when my you did it? My father side. Okay, did you meet with people no. and none? No, I just decided it was more fun to just check out the countryside. Yeah. And what were the odds you're going to like them anyway? Right. right. You probably weren't going to like them anyway. <laughs> Like, you know, it's family. Well, they're, they're very, There's a 98% chance you're not going to like these people. And they're very distant relatives. So uh, obviously, right. Yeah. What's the point? You just knock on their door. You guys available for for lunch? <laughs> right. They're like, who are you? When So with you, with with your different family backgrounds, you were born in... Queens. Queens. Mm-hmm. St. Albans, Queens. How old were you when you moved to Cincinnati? I was almost 10. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I was there for almost like a what decade of What part of, of Queens life. did you grow up in? St. Albans. Okay. Yeah, a lot of people are like, "Where's that?" I'm like, yeah. "I can't." I was a child. I can't really. Well, I, lim- I live in Astoria, and I can't tell you. You can't. Where, yeah, no. It, I. I that's is. all I remember is growing up in Saint. Al- I remember my dad saying, "This is Saint Albans," and going to a private elementary school there. But then I also remember the most awful day of my life when my father was like, "We're moving to Ohio," and I said, "At ten, I was like, even I wasn't even ten. I think I was nine, and he was like, and I was like, this is terrible." <laughs> and I knew at nine, this is a bad move. What is happening? Why are you doing this? Why are this you ruining even, our lives? This is not even lateral. This is no. <laughs> I remember getting a map and pointing and saying, oh, "Are we moving to at least this part of Ohio, like the top part, mm-hmm. the northern, so we could be be close to?" And he was like, "No, we're moving all the way." It was damn near Kentucky, and right. I was like, "Oh, this is awful." But it was for a job. His job got transferred. So. I was, like, was that Procter and Gamble or no? He's with uh, at the time, and the company's uh, evolved. He's now retired, but at mm-hmm. the time, he was with. It was federated department stores at one okay. point and became Macy's. allied and then became Macy's. Um, right. When he retired, yes, he retired from Macy's. But yeah, they owned all the, the Burdines, Hex, Stearns, all those department stores. Yeah, Gimbel's? No. Was there a Gimbel's? I, rem- I vaguely remember a Gimbel's. Yeah. That's a, that's a department that, store? Right. Well, that was from... Um... That's a terrible name. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder I, they're not and around anymore. The, when I lived in the Pacific Northwest, there was Bon Marche. Bon, I do remember Bon Marche, yeah. And that became Macy's as well. Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> but Nordstrom's has always been Nordstrom's. Nordstrom, I mean, they hold it down. Yeah. So uh, when you moved to Cincinnati at 10, did you have to change your childhood dreams? <laughs> or did you or did you double down on what your dreams were? You know, back then, I can't say I had dreams when, being, I, <laughs> being when I was a, a child. Being a 10-year-old in New York City and then being a 10-year-old in Cincinnati. 
Yeah, I can't really say uh, what my dreams were back. You know, you're a kid and you're just like, fuck it. And you're just like, I'm just going to have fun all the time. And that's what I was doing. But I do remember I continued to have fun after we moved to Cincinnati. But that's when reality set in of like uh, that I was different looking like in New York, everybody looked like me. Like there's Puerto Rican people, like everyone I, I blended. And when I moved to Cincinnati, that's when I became an Oreo. That's when I got my hair pulled by like darker skinned black chicks. My sister didn't hear any of this because my sister, you look at her and she just looks like a black person. I was the one that went through this whole issue of uh, I don't like you because this and this and this and things that I knew that I just didn't have any control over. So my sister and I had completely different experiences. You're not allowed to be different shades. No, not in Cincinnati, Ohio. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There was Cincinnati was having a lot of racial issues, even in the early 2000s. They were having there was a bunch of segregation. There was riots that happened that went down at like Jazz Fest. There was a bunch of racial stuff, like political stuff that went down even in the early 2000s, which is crazy. It's getting better now. Yeah. Now. How did you how did you deal with that kind of adversity as a as a teenager and a tween? I spent a lot of time by myself because it that you know by myself I wasn't being judged by anybody. So I read a lot, I learned how to get funny. Uh so to me like feeling awkward was my default. Like I always felt awkward. I always felt like I didn't fit in. So the one thing that I knew that I learned to do was to make people laugh because that was the one thing that to distract them from me not feeling like I fit in or feeling like they were judging me. I was like, oh, I can make them laugh. And then they're not staring at me and thinking I'm weird. Right. So th- and that was like a unifying. And- yeah, it distracts them. Like, oh, she's oh. funny. And then all of a sudden it, it became a defense mechanism for me, but then also worked out in my favor. I guess we'll keep you around. Yeah. <laughs> keep the funny girl with the frizzy hair and the big lips around. How, how yeah. old were you when you first figured that out? That I was funny? Yeah. You know what's weird is that I've actually always known that I was funny. I just didn't know how to harness it and use it to my advantage until I was probably in like high school. I knew that I was funny, but I was always mostly too shy to use it when I was a kid. I I knew when it was like empirical evidence that I was funny was when we were still living in New York and my mom, it was her birthday, and we went to this Italian restaurant called uh, Via Berea, I believe is the name of that restaurant. And we went there and we were in the room and we were like waiting for appetizers or something. And I was just telling jokes and the whole room was laughing. And I don't remember what I was saying, but the room was laughing. And the owner came out and was like, who is this child? Can we hire her to perform here on Sunday nights? (laughs) And so I got offered my first stand up job when I was eight. But my parents are, of course, like, that's ridiculous. She's a child. We're not going to have her oh, work here. So you didn't get to I do didn't, it. No, I didn't start stand-up until after I moved to L.A. You in didn't get to do the next Tony Bennett. No, think about where I... I he was discovered in an Italian restaurant in Queens. Hilarious. I wonder, <laughs> I wonder if it's the same one. Ooh. Yeah, no, it's not. This place actually wasn't in Queens. It was some place in the city. Um, okay. I forget exactly where it's located, but um, they're still there today, and they told me that I have an open invitation whenever I come because they know... They saw me on The Tonight Show, and they were like, we love Candace and blah, blah, blah. So they're still they, cool with my wait, parents. Wait, do they remember? Yeah. Absolutely they remember because they wow. have since become friends with my parents. Okay. So, yeah, so my even parents though, were the ones. Even though your parents held you back. They did. They, professionally. <laughs> 
they held me back by loving me so much and making me a normal person. Oh, that's right. You joke about that I joke in, about, your, yeah. in your act. They held me back romantically in my your, relationships. Yeah, it hurts your dating life because it you don't have debt. Career. Yeah. Oh, I'd have five sitcoms right now if my parents didn't love me. Trust me. <laughs> I'd be trying to get them back by saying, I'll prove, I'll prove to you I can succeed. So then it wasn't until high school. Was that like at the lunch table or was that in um, a more structured way I mean, that you're like... Stuff did go down at the lunch table, but even stuff started going down in like class, in the middle of class. Like something would, the teacher would say something and I would say something to the person next to me. And then that person would start laughing, and then eventually my my whispers became a little bit louder, so more people could hear me. But even so, at the time, like I was still a shy person, so it's hard. I don't know when the shyness actually went away because now I'm even I'm overly not shy now. I used to be I used to be so shy that my sister and when I was with my cousins, they'd be like, "Candace, go. We want to go see a movie. Candace, go ask the lady what time the movie starts. The lady in the booth." And I would be like, "No," and I'd be like, "I was like." 11 years old at that point where right. I could yeah that shouldn't have been a big thing to me but I was like no I don't want to do it so I would be scared to raise my hand and ask questions a lot of things that I don't know about like in just education and history and stuff like that is because I didn't want to raise my hand <laughs> I was very shy uh is your personality different around strangers than it is with friends absolutely isn't everybody so yeah well I was yeah. just as you were talking I'm thinking I'm so not shy around people I don't know oh interesting in just random situations, I will be outgoing and around people you don't know, right? But like then when just you get like around... at the supermarket or at the airport, I will I will be less shy about just cutting loose and entertaining these random strangers. Whereas if I'm at a party with friends, friends and acquaintances, I will be more likely You're to more be introverted. quiet and. Interesting. Maybe Stick it's because to the chips and salsa. there's no consequences around strangers. <laughs> You're True. like, I could make a fool of myself and bomb. nobody will remember this. <laughs> right. I could bomb or I could become a hit. Yeah. Yeah. Either way. You're like, this But this at the is... house party, there can be long It's a little bit more intimidating. Yeah. Because you got to face those people the next day. Mm. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. No, I've, uh, I am definitely more comfortable around friends, but then I, there's moments where I'll be with in strange environments. It just depends on the day. You know, what I'm feeling, my emotions that day, if I feel more vulnerable or whatever. But I'm an empath, and I don't know if you know what an empath is, but I am. So I pick up on other people's energies a lot and their emotions, and that affects me socially a lot of the time. So I sometimes I'll be quiet around strangers, but sometimes I'll feel like more free to say whatever and not give a shit. Uh, I just heard uh, Jackie Cation working on a bit last night about uh, young people who say they're empaths. Oh, <laughs> so, so I want to start. Go. What is so it? So I want to start using her lines oh, like, like is, is that it? a job? How much do you get paid as an empath? Um, <laughs> I have a tip jar. <laughs> I think one of her lines is, "Can you tell how much hate I have in my heart right now?" <laughs> it's That's true. Jackie Cation. I'm crediting Jackie Cation. It's true. Well, I think. Like most things, terms, it's overused, and people right. don't know what the word means. But Having no. empathy versus being an empath are different. They're two completely different yeah. things. Yeah, everyone should have empathy. If you don't, that means you're a sociopath, right? Right. So everyone should have empathy, and that's not something that you should just go around, oh, I have empathy, duh, you're supposed to. But an empath, you feel more than, it's, if you're really sensitive, and I've, mm. that's when I was a kid, I was super sensitive. I think a lot of artists are super sensitive um and a lot i feel like a lot of artists are probably are empaths but it is overused just like so many things are being overused like sexual assault right now is being overused (laughs) over abused yeah 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 absolutely 
So when you're a teenager in high school and you realize that you're funny on purpose, mm -hmm. did you know at 16 that you could turn that into a career? No. At that point? What did you... So what was your plan then? Not at 16. 16, I was like most high school seniors and I was just trying to figure out what college I wanted to go to. And, and back then, like I didn't... I didn't... I just was following what I was supposed to do. Like I was supposed to go to college and just had, get a job. And I think most people in society that, that that's what they want you to do. I didn't even, it wasn't even in my, my wheelhouse to think, Oh, I'll be an artist and you know, just not even know where next month's paycheck is coming from. I had lived in a household that had structure. My family, my dad always had a job. My mom went to work after me and my school. My sister were old enough. She went to work, had always worked. So it was like there was always consistency in our house. And I came from a very responsible household and I didn't want to, you know, skew from that. So I knew that I was going to go to school. I decided that I wanted to study nutrition and health, dietetics. That was I used to be chubbier when I was younger <laughs> and I didn't know how to eat properly. So mm -hmm. once I learned how to eat properly, I was like, oh, maybe I should do this professionally because I'm kind of passionate about this. So I went to school for that. For four years, I studied dietetics. I was a science major. And then... Where did you go? Uh, Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. So... So you didn't even leave Ohio when no, you had the chance? No. I... Like I said, I hadn't like... You forgot about New York? outside the box. You I forgot had, about New York? I like, could have gone in New York, but I still was... I was in... I was in like Midwest mindset of like, this is where I am. They converted you. They did, but only temporarily. <laughs> <laughs> temporarily. Spoiler alert. Uh-huh. So... Okay, I, so you go to Miami of Ohio. I went there for four years, got my bachelor's um, in dietetics, but I did realize, I think I just had an epiphany like six months before I graduated. I was like, I'm goofy. I was like, I don't want to work in a hospital because that's what I'd have to do. I have to do uh, an internship in a hospital and then take tests to get registered as a dietitian. And I was like, people's lives are going to be in my hands. And I was like, I don't know if I'm like like serious enough. Not responsible. I'm definitely responsible. I'm not serious enough mm -hmm. to do that. I'd be cracking jokes like someone's getting their foot amputated right. so, <laughs> from diabetes. I was, so you know, I was like, like this. diabetes is yeah. <laughs> like this is not appropriate, Candace. So then I took I took a a minute and I was like maybe I'm gonna take a leap of faith and do because I'm a very spiritual person too. So I was like I got this talent. I don't think it was a mistake. I'm going to see if I can parlay this into a career. So at that point, I told my parents, I was like, I'm going to graduate with this degree. But when I graduate, I want to live at home for a few years, save up my money because I want to move to L.A. And because my parents are amazing, they were like, OK, they didn't even argue. They're not like you wasted our money. They were like, you can live at home, save up your money. They just wanted me around. So they were like, you can stay here and then we don't want to see you go. But if that's what you want to do and you, we believe in you, we support you. And they let it happen for a few years. Yeah, I stayed home for a few years. It just worked like, right, oh, I was all over the place. I worked like an enterprise rental car. I worked at Jenny Craig. <laughs> I worked a bunch of different so jobs. You're, so sometimes you were putting the nutrition experience to work. I mean, like at the at Jenny, Jenny Craig, Craig, I was a program director there, and that was my train of thought in getting that job. I was like, oh, at least I'm somewhat using, but that whole, I mean, it really wasn't. It was more of a marketing position, that job, and like talking to people and just promoting that specific so if program you're in Cincinnati what's the first when's the first time you walk in the go bananas I didn't start stand-up at all until I moved to LA I didn't know I wanted to do stand-up when I moved here I had no idea I wanted to but move you, knew you I knew I was funny but I didn't think about stand-up I wanted to get into comedy writing for television okay that and acting because I had acted when I was in Cincinnati and I 
knew that I was funny. I hadn't written anything, but I was like, I feel like I'm funny enough that I could write for television. And but the stand up thing, I loved stand up. I remember watching like Johnny Carson, The Tonight Show and watching the comedians and I would memorize the comedian sets. And then I remember watching with my mom and she would not laugh while the comedians performing the sets. And then I would memorize it and then perform it again after. And she would die laughing at what I was doing because that's what moms do. Right. My mom thought I could sing better than Whitney Houston, too, because she's ridiculous. But well, you can now. Obviously. (laughs) Duh. So, yeah, so uh, I had no idea about stand-up until I moved out here for another purpose. But, you know, in the same field, same area, I just didn't know I'd be doing stand-up. Okay, so if you weren't doing stand-up, were you you saving money, but were you... I was just taking acting classes. So you were doing some preparation. Some prep. I actually was taking vocal... It wasn't like your dance partner who thought... Yeah, no. You could wing it. Yeah, no. Mentally, I was like, I don't know what exactly my path is when I move to L.A., but I do know that I want to be in entertainment, so I'm going to hone these few skills that I know that I do have. Not the comedy ones, because I didn't know how to even do that. No one had introduced me to like stand-up, like going somewhere and being like, hi, I want to do an open mic. I didn't even know that existed. So, But I did know that I could sing, I knew that I could dance, and I knew that I could act. So, Triple threat. and i was like i'm gonna try and so i was taking vocal lessons i was taking acting classes and then when i moved out here and then i went to uh i don't know if you you don't seem like the type of dude that follows like millennium dance complex music videos (laughs) dance videos on instagram but i do so but they're and they're really popular now on instagram but back then when i first moved out here like there was this huge there's this dance place called Millennium Dance Complex mm-hmm. where all these professional choreographers who like worked with J Lo and mm-hmm. Britney. So you think you they can taught there? Yeah, people? that didn't even exist back then. But okay. that's where all those people are now. They go there and they teach classes. And so I went there thinking, oh, I got this. And I was like, okay, I'm not a dancer, and I am a dancer. But those people were dancers. Like they were so amazing that I was like, I can't compete. And I knew right there, and I cannot pursue dance. I was like, I cannot because those people have skills that I can only dream of. So okay. I quit that, and I was like, okay, I got to focus. I got to focus. So and you along- got acting and singing still. Acting and singing still, and I did go on some vocal auditions. But at the same time, I was I knew immediately I was competing against people that had been doing this their whole entire lives and had a range that I was like, I just can't. So I, I cut those two and I stuck with the acting thing. And then the stand-up thing came into play when I got introduced to a mutual friend who had been doing stand-up on the East Coast who was moving here. That was just coincidence. He was like, I have a friend that's moving out here. I'll, put, I'll connect you two. And then when the guy came out here, we connected. He was two blocks away from where I was when he moved out here. He was like, where are you? Let's meet up for lunch. And I said, I'm a so-and-so and so-and-so. And And he was like, I'm two blocks away from you. And I was like, this is fate. So we started hanging out. He was like, you're funny. Have you ever thought about doing stand-up? And I said, no. (laughs) He was like, come with me to some open mics. And so I did. Yada, yada, yada. Well, let's talk about some of the yadas. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It was... Wait, so so this guy... Yes, my friend Dewan Owens. Okay, I was, who, wasn't sure if you were going to name him. Oh, yeah, it. no. he's He doesn't really do stand-up so much anymore. He's been acting a lot. Okay. Um, so he's one of those guys, and back then when he first moved out here, he was he had been on the road with Bill Burr, So, and I didn't even know who Bill Burr was at the time, and now he's one of my favorites. Um, but yeah, he was, so I was like, I'll come with you. I trust you. You seem like you are, you, you, know, you know how to get around. He took me to the Laugh Factory, and I joined this sketch group. At the Laugh Factory at the time that was called Comedy Playground with a little known person, um, Kevin Hart. I don't know if you've heard of him. Mm-hmm. He was in the group. 
dudes like Chris Spencer, David Arnold, and like a bunch of Rodney Perry, all these guys who like I came up with early when I first started, but I started in sketch kind of first before I started into uh, stand up. Also, Groundlings. I was at the Groundlings for like a couple of classes. Okay. Um, so that's kind of where I started, and then the the stand up thing started started but at, i also quit for like a year and a half after i started too so why did you quit i got a little uh unmotivated i had i don't know if you're familiar with the term comedy buddy have you ever heard that for that term before it came from this book written by judy carter which the called the comedy bible right which i think every comedian knows about came across at some point they were like and i've had you know, especially you pre-internet to- and pre-youtube absolutely it was like it was the Bible. So every stand-up comic has either been handed this book or told you need to get this book right. before you start. And so in this book, I remember reading about a comedy buddy. And so you need a comedy buddy. And at that time, my friend Dewan, who introduced me, was my comedy buddy. Um, and then we're still friends. And I don't really remember. I think our schedules got a little bit mixed up or something where I wasn't going out with him as much. But then I connected with this other person who had just started. Her name was Joyelle. And we started doing stand-up. I'm going to Mike's together. And she mm-hmm. became one of my best friends out here. And it got to the point where I was even like leaving cloaks. I was living in the Valley at this time, but I still had a day job and I was going like over the hill to go to my day job and then going back over the hill to change my clothes, to go meet, to go sign up for these open mics. So you had to get there in time. Otherwise there's going to be 50 people in front of you. So she gave me a key to her place. Cause she lived like by Melrose and like where pink's hot dogs is. She lived mm-hmm. right central to Hollywood where all the mics were. So she gave me a key to her place so I wouldn't have to go back over the hill to change my clothes. We were like best friends. She was my comedy buddy. We were grinding. And then one day we fell out. And if you've ever done stand-up and you're in the open mic stage of being in stand-up, it's very easy to not get motivated to go sign up at a mic at in, in the middle of rush hour when you know there's going to be 30 people ahead of you and you have to pay $5 and you are only getting three minutes of stage time. It's really easy to be like, oh, I'm not going to do that today. <laughs> and that's what happened after I lost my comedy buddy. I was like, because that we would motivate one another. We'd be like, come on, we, you'd have an obligation and you felt like the, you had to do this because you didn't want to disappoint that person. And it would work out best for both of you. And at that point, I was like, fuck this. So, yeah, I just kind of got lazy. I got lazy. I got some feedback from another, like a producer at the laugh factory one time and he told me I wasn't funny after I'd done one of his shows. He told me to my face, I wasn't funny. And I was like, I got mad at like, if this is what I'm going to be facing, like the, a person like this Mm -hmm. who is in this type of position, who's just going to have my career in the palm of their hand by just based off their opinion. I was like, maybe this isn't the right industry for me. Um, so at that point I just got discouraged and I, I lost momentum and I stopped doing stand-up but at that time I was still trying to act so I did I was taking classes and I still I produced and wrote a short film back in this was in 2009 that I made happen so like I was still doing things I just wasn't in stand-up I quit stand-up for like a year and a half and that was uh that had nothing at the time that had nothing to do with race or gender no well, maybe that the, was just the grind of the gender being thing. The gender thing, actually, when that dude who said I wasn't funny, mm-hmm. um, ninety eight percent sure he told me I wasn't funny because I had rejected him not long before. He like hit on me, and I shot him down. And then I believe him saying that was a way to hurt me since I get, hurt him. Get back right, at you. right. Is he still at the left? 
He's a producer. Yeah, he mm. still he still does stuff there. Yeah. Do you work there now? I that's actually one club I'm not in at the Laugh Factory, and and but that's also because it's a, also lack of trying. I've I showcased a few years ago for them and was about to do my second showcase, and then. Jamie, the owner there, was like, Jamie "That Masada. was yeah, yeah." He was like, "That's great. Come back in if you do just as well the second time you're in." And I was like, "Okay," but then they, you know, the turnover with the uh, the talent booker over there mm-hmm. is awful. Oh, so it's like, okay. I was in with the chick who was booking it, and then the next thing you know, she had me slated to come in and do my second um my second showcase, and then like the next week later, it's someone else there, and they're like, "I don't know who you are." And then you have to prove yourself all over again, right? So, and I was like, I. I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. When did you start doing, uh, was it Creepy Caress? Creepy Caress, the web series, yes. When did you start doing that? Brenda and I, Brenda Colonna, one of my best friends, we started doing that in, we did a Kickstarter for that in 2012, and then okay. we started production for that in 2012, but it aired in 2013. So was that while you had quit stand-up or nope that was i was already back back and that's actually how brenda and i met um i had just i'd gotten back into stand-up in 2010 so how do you after you've quit Mm -hmm. i know how do you motivate yourself how do you yeah how do you go well i'm gonna give this another try i will tell you how please do you know ian edwards yes so ian edwards is one of my very best friends in the world and also one of the funniest people i know and at the time I remember coming to him, it was 2009, and I remember coming to him and saying, talking on the phone, and I was like, I have this joke that I want you to help me with. And he goes, for what? <laughs> and I said, well, I want to, it's a joke. I want to tell this joke. He goes, why? And I said, well, I want to do it on stage. He goes, you're not a comic. And in that moment, I got so incensed. <laughs> I got so I had never I don't think I'd been mad at anything I'd ever been told or heard in my life. And in that moment, I was like, I am a comic. How dare you? And I was like, but I obviously haven't been proving that. So I was like, I have to get my ass in gear. And that year, I think I'd done maybe three shows. Like I wasn't right. in comedy at all. I'd done three over the so course of the year. A comic. I wasn't. It's not like it's not like that guy at the Laugh Factory saying you're not funny. Yeah, no. This is more like this was no. There is evidence. It's more like, like your you strength can, coach going right. What are you talking that, about? That's opinion versus facts. Right. Like I had gotten up, I did one spot at the J spot that year, and I remember doing a wedding and getting kicked out of the wedding. <laughs> yeah. Mid set. No, they let us finish. It was, funny enough, so me and my friend Joyelle, the one mm-hmm. who I, my comedy buddy right. who I'd fallen out with, we had reconnected and mm-hmm. rekindled our friendship. And this year, and this was the year right before she was about to move, because she's in New York now. She still lives in New York. Um, but she, this Joyelle was, Johnson? Mm-hmm. Okay. This is Joyelle. Yeah. So she moved that year. But mm-hmm. one of the last, one of our last things before she moved was we went and did this wedding together. She got invited to go do comedy at a wedding, which is a terrible idea, yeah. by the way. If anyone ever no. suggests that or asks, no. Right. <laughs> what do you I mean... You see it in Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, but that's the bride doing it. <laughs> exactly. She's that's the, not, they didn't inv- hire somebody right. to come in. That's the only way that should be done. You shouldn't have two complete strangers. Right. Or the best man. Or the, yeah. Somebody who's the in the circle. Yeah. The circle of trust. It's part of the toast. <laughs> right. That's the funny part. <laughs> that's the funny part because you have inside jokes. Yeah. You don't hire two complete strangers, which is what these people did. And, and our sets went as well as they could have gone considering the you know situation. Mm-hmm. 
we didn't curse. We kept it clean. We knew it was family friendly, but it was just not an ideal, uh, you know, environment. And then so the woman, Dating after we did our sets, <laughs> like this is not actually <laughs> appropriate. And so as soon as we sit down after doing our sets, we get tapped on the shoulder and it's this chick's bridesmaid. She sent her over, sent her over like a goon. She was like, come with me, please. And we hadn't even finished. We had just like started eating our meal. Mm-hmm. So she was like, come with me, please. And we go outside and she's like, the bride is very upset with what you guys were talking about today. And I was talking about stuff that I've talked about for years, like just talking about being multiracial mm-hmm. and looking. Con- and the, the groom was also from a multiracial family. And the chick was like, well, that was offensive because the groom is mo- his family and they took offense. I was like, you can't speak for people. We literally just performed and you're telling me these people were offended. You don't know what they were laughing. The people that related to my situation were laughing. So and it was just bullshit. Anyway, they got mad, but they still paid us. And mm-hmm. it was like a hundred. We got paid like a hundred dollars each. But you get what you pay for. <laughs> they were like Joel had referred some more like Christian type comics to them. But they were like, that's out of their price range. So like I said, you get what you pay for. So. So Ian says you're not a comic. Yes. And you're jolted. Yeah. You're like, oh, wait a second. I w- if I could have reached through the phone and choked him. Oh, it was over the phone. Okay. Yeah, this was over the phone. and But no, it was palpable. I, I would have murdered him if he was in front of me. But it did motivate you. It did. So I thank him. <laughs> At the time, I wanted to stab him in the heart. but So when you jump back in this second time, do you decide to do things differently? Absolutely. How so? I... I, well, for one, was like, fuck a comedy buddy. I was like, this is on me. And I did have, like, my friend Ed Greer, who I love to death. So he was somebody who did start, like, coming around with me when I was doing mics. But even when he was unable to go, I was like, this is not on him. This is on me. So I took responsibility. And I started going to the comedy store, which I had done only a few times back when I was first starting because at the time and I was like I want to go about this a smart way and this is like a huge place to perform so I was like I don't want to see I don't want them to see me when I'm not funny I want to know that I'm funny first and then uh, take it from there and so but I did have the confidence that I was like even though I haven't been performing I was like I think I'm funny enough that I can go to the store and not worry about my reputation being harmed and it worked out I was going there five years before I got passed. And so... To like the open my Well, not... The potluck thing uh, I was doing for maybe a couple years. And okay. then they moved me up to friends and family, which is then you call in your avails and they'll give you development spots during the week. But it was a f- five-year process of me doing the potluck, the friends and family before I got passed in uh, December of 2014. 14. Yeah. And now you're a regular. I'm a regular. Yeah. It's been... It's three years now, which is insane. How do you compare your experiences in the three different rooms? Oh, I love all the rooms because they give, they're all different. Right. There's the belly room, the, the original belly, room, and the main room. And the main room and the OR. My favorite is the OR. Any comic that's a regular will tell you that their favorite room is the OR because you don't know what you're going to get in there. And if you can destroy in that room, you can destroy anywhere. There's a lot of tourists that come in there. Some Half the time, they don't speak English. And it's like, if you can conquer that, you're good anywhere. The main room, and there's not a there's not a lot of high expectations necessarily in the OR. Like in the main room, because the room is so large, right? High ceilings and it's set up for a show. Yeah, uh, and so people go in there and they 
And also on those shows that are in the main room, a lot of the time on those lineups on the weekend, it's you're on there with a bunch of like there's the uh, the uh, Joe Rogan's and the Louis at the time. (laughs) So they see those people. Mm -hmm. So by the time I get up, there's expectations. They're like, oh, these television stars are here. And then it's like, who are you? So even at late night, when I'll get up there, there's there people are still there's like put on a show. What are you doing? Why are you working out material? Which no comic ever wants to feel. We want to feel that we can work out new material because the, the crowd is on our side. So there is an expectation from them that we have to overcome. A lot of the times they're cool. A lot of the times they're not. But in the OR, there is more of a relaxed, laid back. You're at home. We're all family here. Let's work out some stuff. You're going to go with me for the ride regardless. The belly room, it's kind of... I don't know why the belly room is different than the OR, but it is. But in a good way. It's still a fun room. Like, I rarely go up there and have a bad set. But sometimes when the energy in that room is low, it can be a terrible set. Mm. But that's also the OR. So I can't... There's not too much difference. I don't really know what the difference is between the two. Okay. I have fun in both. The main room is the one with all the expectations, though. So it's a lot of pressure sometimes. And you feel like you're not... You feel like you do old stuff because you know it works, which is not satisfying for us as a comic because it's like I want to say these other things but I don't know if the crowd's going to hate me if I say it so it makes you a little bit insecure and vulnerable now did you encounter any similar kind of gender issues your second time going to the store coming up coming up through the ladder oh it's never going to go away like I feel like it's the same I feel like it's completely I mean it's just now we're just now having a conversation about how women are being treated just now in 2000 End of 2017, early 2018. So nothing had changed until now. And even now, it's not... I'm still... I still look at lineups. I still am like, why am I the only woman on this... Why am I the only black person on this lineup? And it's... Nothing's really changing. And what's even more infuriating is because now that it's a conversation, people are... People are now trying to make their their projects and their lineups diverse so that they don't come off as racist or sexist so they still have quotas they'll still be like oh i'll put one here and one here one black person here one woman here and if you don't fall into their box of what it is that their check mark that makes them look okay you're still screwed i got turned down i've been asked to do uh, or not asked to do but i i heard that a festival didn't want me because i didn't look diverse enough for their flyer and that's a festival yeah because i was just gonna ask if it's if the feeling is different from the clubs to the alt rooms and, it's all the same. and even on the road or festivals. It's all the same. It doesn't matter where. How, how much do you work the road? I work the road a little bit. I'm not really, that's not my goal. I'm not a road comic. It's also different just being a woman too. It's not necessarily something. We get a different experience on the road than men do. We don't, men get excited when they go and do roads and they got groupies and like, oh, and like we don't live for that. Like it's not safe for us a lot of the times. You get put up in these crummy places so I like to do the road when I know it's a, a a safe environment, but also I don't want the road is lonely. So well, I guess that's when you really need a comedy buddy. That is like, do you mind going on this twelve hour road trip with me? <laughs> so yeah, that's never been a desire of mine. I want to be able to do the road like, and this is so ridiculous, but I want to be able to do the road like how Amy Schumer does the road when she wants to do the road. Like I want to be like I want to do this club and this club and this club when I feel like doing it. I don't want to have to be on the road to pay my rent. Which is great because I don't have to. Like, I get enough love in town, which a lot, unfortunately, a lot of comics don't. But I get enough love in town, so I don't have to be on the road. Have you gotten a lot more love since doing The Tonight Show? <laughs> of course. 
yeah, that's just going to come with the territory. But surprisingly, still not a lot of respect, too, because of it. It's it's interesting that I still get turned down for like certain festivals and stuff like that. Also, it's like it mean that meant nothing. Yeah, that's, that's like it's easier for me to book the Tonight Show than your festival. Okay, that's a curious <laughs> thing that the TV credits mean something some places, but then are other places and now they're completely meaningless. It's so saturated now. It's so saturated. There's so many comics. There's so many late nights that do stand up, and it's like it's so hard to make yourself stand out when you have that type of environment. But it's it's a little discouraging, but at the same time, it's just what it is now. You just got to deal with it. Is that why you did Creepy Caress to have other projects? Or? Absolutely. Any any artist, comedian that's not doing their own stuff, you're going to get left behind. Because you have to compete with these YouTube people. You have to be able to show that you have some type of fan base or you have ideas. These execs are lazy. They don't want a comic who they have to come up with ideas for. They want you to be the complete package. And I get and that. And they just get the commission. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's sad, but it's true. They're like, we want to, you already proven yourself. Now I want to sign you mm-hmm. as opposed to me believing in you. Let's build this together. They don't want that. So yeah, no, you have to have your own stuff. So yeah, I have a web series that I'm working on right now with my manager. Um, we shot the first one. We're probably going to shoot a second one too. And then we're going to start pitching it to different platforms to see if they'll uh, put it on there. If not, we'll just put it on YouTube ourselves. We'll, we'll see which way it goes, but okay. yeah, you got to keep creating. Now with the first project, you said you did that via Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. How was that process back then? Awful. I mean, it's a lot of work. We raised six thousand dollars. That was our goal. We just wanted six thousand dollars. Because with Kickstarter, it. it's all or nothing, as opposed to going to yeah. Indiegogo if you don't or... get it, you don't you don't get any of it. Right. So it was risky, but we took a leap of faith and it worked out. But yeah, it's a lot of work. You have to, and then you gotta, you know, you gotta reward the people for donating. You have to have these incentives. So like, if someone donated twenty five dollars, you give them a T shirt or something, and then. It was just a lot of work and promoting and being on Twitter and Facebook. And I know people are tired of seeing that. I just feel like I don't I don't like asking people for money. That's such a I don't I've never been that person. But at the same time, I knew that I wanted to get this done and I didn't want to come out of pocket that much. So it was something we had to do. Did you have to cut it close or was it pretty easy to get the money? Um, We, we did it. it. They gave us a month to do it. Mm-hmm. And I think. We were a little bit over our goal. So I think within the last week, it was like, are we going to make our goal? And then we did. And then we had like a couple of days left, I think. And we had a little bit more than the 6,000. I only ask because it seems like, well, there's not as many projects now as there were four years ago. But it seemed like a lot of the projects came down to the final day. And then that's when like their friends and family would kick in. Or like, oh, here you go. Yeah. (laughs) no, put you over the top. I don't think we were that stressed come the last week. I don't think we were that far. Even if we were like 500 away from the goal in the last week, I'm like, okay, I'll put this on a credit card. <laughs> like, I'll, I'll take us over. It, it, it's not that big of a deal. We weren't that stressed. Yeah. Okay. I think if we had, but our goal also wasn't that high. 6,000 is not that high compared to, I have a, my friend Amanda, she did her web series and she had, she was asking 30,000. So ours was really nothing compared. Jamie Flam with his, I don't know, with his uh, yeah, the dynasty theater, the dynasty. Yep. $100,000 they raised. So like in retrospect, like we could have asked for $50,000. But then we he were, also did like a high profile, like live streaming telephone. He did. He did a telephone. With celebrity And it, the name, the and... place also has a name attached to it. Like uh, I believe it's uh, Diablo Cody. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's oh, attached okay. to that place. So yeah, it's not, I don't, they had help. They had help. Whereas we're just too lonely. Right, that's what I'm saying. I feel like uh, some of these things, like they have friends who have a lot of money and like. Right. 
And they, if it's cutting close, they could just go, like, hey, Diablo, you know. Yeah, could you... <laughs> could you make sure we right. succeed could in this? Could you just put in a phone call to Judd Apatow real quick? Yeah, so... <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, what is your goal now? My goal now is... You have a goal now. Absolutely. It's I have so like, many goals. I have a vision like board. It's not like when you were 10 and you're like... You know, and uh, you know, back then I was just such a loser. I was such a loser back then, just not goal oriented at all when I was nine. So you have goals now. I do. I have a vision board, and it's full. Um, I eventually want to have my own production company. I want to have my own sitcom. Uh, I'm actually have a pilot written for myself right now that I want to get going at some point. But I want to have my own production company. I want to do feature films. Um, yeah, I mean, in the web series that I'm working on right now, yeah, like I. I want to be a force. And so, yeah, I'm doing. Have you been through the regular pilot season before? I have mean, you done all of that rigmarole. I have gone through multiple pilot seasons. I don't have a theatrical agent at the moment right now. So, like, I will get thrown things to my manager, like, have Candace come in for this and this and this. But mm-hmm. it's not as I sh- it's I'm not going out as regularly as I should just because of I don't have a theatrical agent at the moment. Okay. So, but yeah. But if anybody's looking. I'm here. To cast a sitcom with a ethnically vague... <laughs> you know one wants ethnically vague anymore, Sean. They want blatantly brown. Is that... I'm dead serious. Is that I told, why, is that I told why you, you, say you that's why I got denied of... from a festival, because I didn't look diverse enough for the flyer. Some white chick is telling me, I don't look diverse enough for her flyer. That's a quote. <laughs> that's so, when you need to do the me in 23 or at Ancestry.com and go... <laughs> And prove it. It doesn't matter. It attaches to your headshot. Doesn't matter. <laughs> Unless I can have that tatted on I me at all times. I am 30% times. Nigerian. Yeah, it doesn't matter. 40% Sue. It doesn't matter. Mm. Which is the hypocrisy of the whole thing. It's like, again, you don't care about diversity. You care about not looking racist. Right. What's more diverse than a black chick who looks Polynesian? The fuck out of here. <laughs> Who is, above all things, funny. Thanks. First and foremost. <laughs> it's not about funny, Sean. <laughs> this industry is not about and talent. And she's secretly smart. But she doesn't want you to know that. <laughs> it's on the low. Don't yeah. tell people that. Okay. So, um, before I let you leave, I mean... This is not a hostage situation. No. That's I mean, relief. I always ask for consent. Um, Hashtag me too. But uh, I always try to make sure I ask my guests for some inspiration or advice I have for the listeners. Um, so for that for that young woman mm-hmm. who's funny in high school but doesn't know what to do with it, what do you tell that? I will... What do you tell that teenager? I will tell... And not even just the funny person. My, my advice to anyone who knows they have a talent is that that was not a mistake. A lot of people are, are they, I don't know what to do. I don't know what I want to do. I don't know what my purpose is. Purpose. Yeah, I was just thinking purpose. Yeah, the... people don't know what their purpose is. And I'm like, look at the things that you really enjoy doing. Look at the things that you're really good at naturally, that you didn't have to work hard at, that were just there. And that is your purpose. And just hone it. Because I'm the happiest I have ever been. And I know it's because of the path that I chose. I I was I did what a lot of people do. I worked a day job for a long time, and I was miserable. Even when I was working the day job and doing the comedy thing, I was still like, "This isn't me. I need to. I'm miserable." And it was when I let that go was when and I 
had complete faith that everything was going to work out and everything has been working out because I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And I'm also a good person. I'm not a shitty person. So like, I don't treat people like shit. I'm not worried about other people. I focus on me. My competition is me. And, um, I don't let all the minutiae, you know, get in like cloud my judgment and cloud my behavior and, and affect the way I act towards people. It's just, uh, Because that can happen a lot in L.A. or even just in general. You let all this, the actions and other people affect how you behave. And I feel like that gets in people's egos and everything. It just gets, it gets, it gets to be too much. And it gets, some people can't handle that. All all I'm saying is don't worry about that. Focus on you and do what you want to do and what you believe you can do. And that's all you need to worry about. Well, Candace Thompson, I'm glad you found your purpose. Thank you. And uh, I'll be sure to tell Ian Edwards the next time I see him that I (laughs) had a lovely conversation with the comedian, Candace Thompson. She's not a comic. (laughs) She most certainly is. He probably won't even remember that. Oh, he will. He will. (laughs) Thanks so much, Candace. Thanks for having me. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks first.